Exodus chapter 1. So the beginning of the, the Bible, the second book of the Bible, right there at the front. I'll let you turn there and then you can follow along as I read that chapter. The Scripture says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation... The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray that You would speak to us in power, that we would hear Your voice through Your Word, and that we would be changed and grow as a result of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're beginning a series, our study through the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, but it's really a part of a larger book in the Bible. Uh, what's called the Pentateuch of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So in a sense, in jumping into the series in Exodus, we're jumping into the middle of a larger book, the Pentateuch, which was written by Moses. The story of Exodus is a part of an even larger story of God choosing for himself a people, choosing to save this people for himself, growing them, bringing them into a land that he had promised. But of course, it's even a bigger story than that, right? The story of God's world and how He has chosen a spiritual people for Himself who are His in and through Christ. It's the story about God's work of creation and salvation through Jesus Christ. 
As we go through this book, each week you'll notice some of the same themes reoccurring. One of that themes is about God's character. God is sovereign. To be sovereign means that God is in control of all things. That He works all things according to His plan. No matter what comes about in human history, He has arranged it in order to fulfill His plan. As a play, playwright scripts the play and directs the play, arranges the setting and the movement of the play, God is working all things together for His glory and for the good of His people. God is sovereign. That's a theme we're going to see over and over again. Another theme that comes up in Exodus is that God is our Savior. Time again, God's people need rescuing. And God is the one who rescues them. And a final theme in Exodus is that God is the guide of His people. During their slavery in Egypt, during their journey through the wilderness to the promised land, God was with His people, guiding them every step of the way until they reached their final destination. Now, each of us needs to remember these truths about who God is, not only to understand the Bible and the story of Exodus, but to understand our own lives and understand who God is for us. You've probably asked the question at some point in your own life, where is God in the dark days? Where is God when I'm going through trials? Where is God when it seems like He is so far away? Sometimes He seems so silent. Sometimes it seems like He's not near. Where is He in those days? Chapter 1 of the book of Exodus reminds us that God is sovereign over all of His creation and over all of the affairs of our life. It reminds us that God is not only sovereign and in control, but that He is with us that He is with His people, that He is working His plan, working His plan for His glory and praise. In order to understand this chapter, we also need a little background from Genesis. So flip back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 6. And keep your finger there because we will turn back there in a little bit as well. Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. There it says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Here we have a great promise. God had chosen Abram out of all, of all of the nations of the earth, and said, you are going to be my chosen one. You are going to be the one who will grow into a nation. I'm going to bless the entire world through you, Abram. 
He promised Abram that his offspring, his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, would number as many as the stars that are in the sky. So in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus, we see that the sovereign God is fulfilling his promise. God is fulfilling his promise. Did you see how many people, how many Israelites came to Egypt there in the first seven verses of Exodus 1? All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And Joseph was already in Egypt. This reminds us of how God's people ended up in the land. Joseph, you remember, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Through trials and suffering, and eventually he became the second in command of all of Egypt. There was a great famine in the land where nobody had enough to eat until Joseph came along. God had given him a dream in order to save the land of Egypt and all those in the area. God saved them, the Israelites, through Joseph. And in this way, all the Israelites, 70 in number, came to Egypt. Verse 7, the sovereignty and faithfulness of God shine through. God was keeping His promise. The Israelites were growing. Just look at how Moses says this in verse 7. How many ways he's trying to tell us. They're growing, they're growing, they're growing. The people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with, with them. It says over and over again, these people are growing. God was fulfilling His promise to Abraham years earlier. See, here's the truth that each one of us needs to hear. God does not change. right? God in His faithfulness In His sovereignty, God does not change. He was in control then, and He's in control now. Times change, situations change, our world changes, but God remains the same. How many of you have been to a high school reunion any time lately? If you go to a high school reunion, you've probably noticed that people change, right? Now, some may stay somewhat the same. Maybe they're teenagers stuck in an adult body now. But most of them have changed in some way or another. They've become more mature. They have children and families of their own. They have careers. They've changed. Our situations change. Think about your own life since high school. How things have changed you. When you were younger, you probably had no idea you would be where you are today. Maybe they're happy changes. Maybe they're unfortunate changes. Maybe your situations haven't turned out like you had always thought they would. You might think, how did I get here? Where did I go wrong? You might even wonder, where is God in this situation? In my life right now, He used to seem so close to me, but now He seems so far away. I can't sense His presence. Friend, the same sun that shone on the Israelites 5,000 some years ago the same sun that's shining today. And the same God that was watching over His people then is watching over His people today. He is watching over His people. The same God that was in control of those times is in control of these times and every single one of your situations. God doesn't change. He was working His plan then and He's working His plan today. I know sometimes it's hard to see that. It's hard to see the truths that we know about God in the midst of dark days. That was the case for the people of God in in Egypt. They were in the midst of very dark days. Verse 
8 tells us that a new king arose over Egypt, a king who didn't know Joseph, who didn't know what Joseph had done to save Egypt and all of the people around. And he got scared. There are too many Israelites here. They're going to they're gonna keep growing and growing. And then if we go to war, they're going to turn against us and overthrow us. We've got to stop them. We've got to stunt their growth somehow. So he came up with a plan. Basically, his plan was to put them into slave labor, to wear, to wear down their spirits, and even to kill them if possible. The work was so hard that many, no doubt, were expected to, de- to die. So they set taskmasters over them. Look at the words that Moses uses there. To afflict them, to give them heavy burdens, uh, to be ruthless with them, to make them slaves, to make their lives bitter with heavy burdens. The plan was to try to kill off as many Israelites as possible through hard labor and to keep the men from being with their wives so they couldn't have children. They built cities, which mean they would have, that meant they would have had to travel a long way away, perhaps for a long period of time. If you've done any manual labor for a job, you've probably felt like you were going to die, right? You, you just come to exhaustion and you don't know if you can take any more. I've spent many days on uh, the roof on a hot summer day. And some days like that you think that death might be a good alternative, Right? <laughs> But when we begin to think about what the Israelites were going through, anything, almost anything we have been through is a drop in the bucket compared to what they went through day in and day out. Not just for five years, not just for ten years or fifteen years or twenty For their entire lives, they suffered under this slavery. Think of the worst day you've ever had, the hardest day you've ever gone through doing manual labor and then multiply it times ten. And then, then add heavy burdens of work on your back, sun up to sundown with no days off, and then add the sting of whips lashing across your back. But through the years and years of pain and suffering, I wonder if the Israelites remembered the promise of God to Abraham. Look at the stars, Abraham. This is what your children are going to be like. It's what your descendants will be like. And through it all, God was working His plan. He was fulfilling His promise. But then, I wonder, too, what they would have thought if they remembered His promise. Great. We're growing. We're a great nation. But we're in slavery. What's the good of that? What does it matter if we grow and grow as a nation, but we're just beaten every day in slavery, what does it matter? So there's another promise that God had made to Abraham in that same chapter. Abraham, uh, Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. So where you have your finger there in Genesis, turn back there. Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. It says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here. 
For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, God said, there are dark, dark days ahead of your, for your children. Dark days. 400 years of dark days. But Abram, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Rescue will seem like it's slow to come, but it's coming. Maybe you've been walking through dark days right now in your life. Your relationships are broken. Your life seems so hard you've lost loved ones or you're suffering from some sort of sickness that causes you problems day after day after day. You hear me say that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but you, you say to yourself, I don't see any light. I only see darkness. Here's where we can apply what we learned this last, last week. Here's where we can learn to speak the truth in love to one another. Here's where we need to come alongside of one another, going through those times of suffering and dark days and speak to someone in need. Brother, I know you feel like these dark days will never end. But I want you to know something. Because you're in Christ, God loves you. Even though you can't see Him, He's here and He is working. I know it feels like you're walking under a a thick black cloud that's never going to go away, but one of these days the sun is just going to break through and you're going to feel the warmth of God's love on your face. You'll feel His care for you. Keep trusting Him. Keep trusting Him. Walk by faith in God and not by what you see. Christians, God has promised us in Romans 8 that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He has promised us that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not suffering, not broken relationships, not sickness, not joblessness, not even death can separate us from God's love in Christ. No doubt some of God's people during this time in Egypt doubted God. They may have said, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. For most of them, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. 400 years, do you know how many generations that is of not seeing any sort of light at the end of the tunnel? But God was there each step of the way. Working, caring for His people. He was in control. And He was faithful. If you're not going through trials, I wonder how you will face them when they come. This life is filled with trials. Maybe three months down the road, maybe now you think this doesn't apply to you, but three months, six months, a year down the road, something is going to come up. How are you going to deal with your trials? Will you respond with doubting and complaining and bitterness and despair? I know that's my own tendency. Where are you, God? I'm doing the best I can here. Can I get a little help? Or will you lift your voice up in prayer to the God who is in control? To the God who is faithful? Will you you remember the promises of God for those who belong to Jesus? Here we get a glimpse of how some of God's people responded. Things were already bad for the Israelites. They were being beaten. They were slaves in a foreign land. But things were about to get even worse. The king of Egypt and all the Egyptians were afraid of the The Israelites, the more they oppressed them, the more that they grew. So here's the next phase of the extinction of the Israelites. The king went to Hebrew midwives, two of them uh, named Shifra and Puah, probably leaders over other midwives. 
and told them to kill any baby boy that was born. The king was aiming for nothing short of genocide. The killing out of the race of the Israelites. So how did the midwives respond to this? In the face of persecution and slavery and danger to their own lives. He, the king had come to them personally. He had probably promised them reward for doing as he said. He had probably promised them punishment for not doing as he had said. How would they respond when it seemed like there was no light at the end of the tum- tunnel? And we see how they responded. They did not obey the king of Egypt, but they obeyed the king of kings. They didn't fear what man could do to them. They feared God. Now to fear God, isn't to be afraid of God in such as to run away from Him. To fear God is to understand His greatness and power so that you stand in awe of who He is. To fear God is to fear what He can do to you if you disobey. But it means you run to God and not away from Him. It means you obey God rather than man. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. Did you see what the fear of God is? What He calls it there? A practice. The fear of the Lord is not simply a feeling. It's something you practice. Those who practice the fear of the Lord have a good understanding. It's a godly and wise thing to fear God rather than man. To obey God rather than man. So so to fear man rather than God is like being afraid of the chihuahua nipping at your heels when there is a huge lion ten feet away. Right? Are you going to pay all of your attention to the chihuahua? No way. Jesus says in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What would our natural instinct be if if we saw a lion close by? An untamed lion close by? To run, right? Get away as soon as we possibly could. We would be afraid. And I think that's the same instinct a person has when he sees who God is. When he understands the greatness and power of God. Your immediate instinct is going to be run away. That's why the prophet Isaiah said in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, when he got a glimpse of the glory of God, Woe to me! For I am a man of unclean lips in a land filled with people who have unclean lips. Or... Peter, when Jesus performed the miracle at sea, raising up hundreds of fish, how did Peter respond to seeing a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus? He said, get away from me, Jesus. He was afraid. His natural instinct was to run away. If you're not a Christian, you should be afraid of God. Because of our sin, we deserve punishment from God. Eternal hell. Every one of us deserves that. And when we realize His power and His greatness, we will want to run away. But here's the thing. It's not God's intention that you would see His power and greatness, fear Him and run away from Him. It's that you would see His power and greatness, fear Him and run to Him. Let your fear of God drive you to God who is the only one who can really do you any harm in eternity. 
Because He's also the only one who can save you in all eternity. In the Narnia books uh, by C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, God is pictured as Aslan, the great lion. And it seems like I remember at the beginning of the story, the children who, who came to Him, approached Him, who first saw Him, were afraid of Him. But gradually they were drawn to Him over and over again. They were drawn to this great lion because they knew He was the power that could destroy them, but also the power that could keep them safe. So God calls us to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our way of doing things, to fear Him and to run to Him, to turn to Christ, to draw near to God so that we would not be afraid, so that we would be cleansed from our sins and be safe with God forever. And then when you truly begin to fear God, not not fearing Him because He's mad at you, when you truly begin to learn the fear of God, you will have wisdom. Learning how to walk in His ways rather than your own. There's still a fear of God for us Christians too. A way we are supposed to fear God is it's a fear of doing anything that would bring shame on the name of Jesus. It's the fear of turning away from Him and His ways. It's the fear that's expressed in the hymn we sang. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Fasten it to You. Seal it for Thy courts above. So teenagers, listen. Here's what the fear of God means for you. The fear of God is what's going to help you stand for what's right in the midst of everything that's wrong around you. The fear of God is what's going to keep you from cheating in school when all of your friends are doing it. The fear of God is what's going to keep you from joining in with the other kids and making fun of someone. The fear of God rather than people is what's going to keep you from abusing alcohol or drugs or looking at pornography. Friends, all of us, what would our lives look like if we woke up every day with a ready sense of God's power and greatness? A ready sense of the fear of God in our minds if we had an awareness of that at our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods. If we had the fear of God before us rather than the fear of man, what would our speech be like? We'd be slow to speak and quick to listen. We'd be slow to speak words of criticism or to spit out crude jokes We would be bold to speak the name of Jesus without fear of embarrassment or persecution. Has our fear of man outgrown our fear of God? Let's be ready to take on a little embarrassment or awkwardness from this world that those we speak to might hear of Jesus who can save them. Let's fear God for those who have no fear of God. And speak Jesus to them that they might be saved. We must fear God rather than man. That's what the Hebrew midwives did. They feared God rather than man. In their response to the Egyptian king, they said the Hebrew women weren't like the Egyptians. They were vigorous to give birth before the midwife came to them. We're not exactly sure what Moses means there. Perhaps they really did give birth before the midwives could get there. And maybe there was... Uh, 
an understanding between the midwives and the mothers, whatever you do, don't call us until you are absolutely ready to give birth. And we won't be able to get there in time. We'll have an excuse for the king. It doesn't mention anything about them doing anything displeasing to the Lord. In verse 20 it says, God dwelt well with the midwives. Verse 21, because they feared God, He gave them families. Now this, this is a light. A glimpse of the light at the end of the tunnel for the Hebrew midwives. They were probably women who uh, were getting up in age and didn't have children of their own. And so they were uh, given the task of being midwives for the Hebrew women. They feared God. They obeyed God. He gave them families. God's blessing in the midst of desert and dryness. The people of of Israel increased all the more, growing strong. And then the king of Egypt takes it up another notch. Instead of just saying to the Hebrew midwives, take the first son, he, he commands all of his people, if you see a son born, Throw him into the Nile. Kill him. What will they do? They're backed in a corner with nowhere to go. They need someone to save them. They need someone to rescue them. They need God to break in and do something. And we read about this in chapter 2. What we'll see next week. God will raise up a man to save His people from oppression. But all this should make us think of another time in history when a ruler wanted to destroy all the male children. When King Herod found out he had been tricked by the wise men. What did he do? He had all the children killed in Bethlehem two years and younger. Satan was trying to ruin God's plan. But God was raising up another leader. God was sending a rescuer for for His people. One who would lead God's people through this land into the promised land of heaven. See, the story of Exodus is meant to teach us about Jesus. About Christ. Every human is a slave to sin. And that slavery will lead to death if we remain in it. But Christ, by His death, has broken those bonds. He has conquered sin by His death. Now you must run away from your sin and run to Jesus Christ, you'll be free. You'll be free from punishment, free from God's anger, free to live not for your own pleasure, but for God's. And you will be free to fear God rather than man. Let's pray together. Father, there are so many temptations in our world today. Temptations at school, temptations at work, temptations in our neighborhoods and among our families. Temptations to fear people rather than You. Temptations to do what the world would have us to do rather than what You would have us to do. We pray, Father, that You would work in our hearts in such a way that we would see Your power, that we would see Your might, and that we would say, I don't care what my boss tells us if it goes against God. I'm listening to God, not to man. That we would say, I don't care what the world thinks about this. I'm going to stand up for what is true. I fear God, not man. Father, help us that we would fear you and not man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Hey Wally. Hey Wally. Ah.